So I'm just going to read this first and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 14, it says, Then John's disciples came to him, Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your, your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skin bursts, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Dearly Father, we, we come before you again today, just in need for you to move. For you to be living and active in your word. For you to, to penetrate our, our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We ask that you would be poured out this morning and nobody else. That pride would have no room. That guilt would have no room. That our own expectations would have no room. But you would fill this place this morning in such a way that we walk away knowing that you moved. Not just in the lives of other people, but in our own. Lord, help us to see you and hear you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, there's a lot of similarities. And one thing that's interesting to know going into this, we're going to call this the pretext context. So uh, both Ma- uh, in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a pretty similar structure of the, of the events that take place before Jesus uh, has this encounter with the Pharisees and uh, the disciples of John. And, and hear them here. They're, they're kind of in different orders. And what I found remarkable is normally, at least for me, if I were to choose Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or even John to get information, I would normally go to Luke. Luke, Luke, we know, is documented that he was like, the, he wanted to write every detail down. He was the one that wanted all the most information, went to the eyewitnesses, went to the second hand, went to everybody to gather all of it. But in this particular case, Matthew gives a little bit more information. So I thought that was similar. So, I mean, interesting. So all three of them, uh, in, in a similar order, they have uh, Jesus doing these miracles. He, the man uh, cleansed of leprosy. There is a Jesus healed at Capernaum. That was with Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, we have Jesus talking about the cost of discipleship. And, and uh, what's interesting is this is just, I believe it's just in Matthew, uh, the Jesus calming the storm. This is a, if, if you're new to this, this is Jesus actually controlled nature. Okay. We have uh, the demons driven out uh, by Jesus. This is, some call it the demoniac. What's interesting is I always thought it was just one guy, one guy that had this legion of demons, you remember, uh, where, where he runs out of the cave naked, and, and he, the, the demons in the guy address Jesus and say, what, what, are, what are you doing here? What are you going to do with us? Uh, don't kill us. Send us into the pigs. And then they go into the pigs, and then they go over the, the cliff. I always thought it was just one guy, but in Matthew there's a different recording of more than one guy. Um, look that up yourself. I'd love to go into it, but we can't. Jesus hears, heals the paralytic, and, and he also, at, this is where he forgives the sins uh, of the man that kind of blows the religious leaders back. And then all of them, just before this parable of the wineskins, 
is uh, the calling out of Matthew. So we have all of these, all of these miracles, all of these things that would blow people's minds, and then we have the call of Matthew. I'm going I'm to read uh, Matthew 9 for you. It says, as Jesus went on from there. So, again, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And when Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house. So, so first of all, Matthew's called out by Jesus. We don't have any hesitation recorded. Do any of you hesitate with Jesus? Ever? So he, does, he doesn't know this guy. Calls him out. Okay, why not? And then now the next verse says, while he's reclining at... So he got super comfortable with Jesus really quick. I mean, I'm sure there's a timeline between being called and this dinner taking place, but, but here in Scripture, we just have that, the recording right there, and now he's chilling at his table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, they didn't ask Jesus, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Now when he heard this, Jesus, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Amen. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, for Jesus to call out Matthew, Levi, this would have been absolutely audacious at best. So sometimes, maybe you've ever been part of a team or leadership or or something, and, and, uh, you know, you come, you want more people. You want more leaders. You want more people part of your group, your team, sports, whatever. So you want the cream of the crop. And sometimes, if there's a leader, someone that picks somebody that you wouldn't, you would not have picked because you don't see the potential that they see in them, but you're like, oh, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt, right? That happens, right? The underdog. We love an underdog story. This is not that. This is picking somebody that has no arms and no legs and still picking them to be part of the team. The, the audaciousness of, of, of calling out Matthew, who his, his, his job, being a tax collector, it was socially acceptable to hate tax collectors. Anybody, doesn't matter if you're religious or not, you can hate, that's okay, we get it, we don't like them either. Okay? And for Jesus to call out Matthew, mind-blowing. For, G- for Matthew to say yes was mind-blowing. So okay, we're getting, to, we're getting to, the, to the context. All of these miracles take place. People getting healed. Demons. Remember the demoniac? They were called legion because of how many they were in that were in one person or a couple of people. Jesus healing, casting out demons, uh, 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 saying uh, no storm, and and all of these like can't even explain it. And then he does something this in a different category of mind blowing. But what the Pharisees, the disciples of John, the scribes just before, what they were concerned with wasn't these mind-blowing miracles. Wasn't that, that, that Jesus called this guy to be one of him, but it was all the other people Jesus was eating with. And then as we see, 
they talk about fasting. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Out of everything that Jesus has done, this, I'm sure not everybody heard everything that was going on, but you heard something. If you didn't hear about the, the, the guy with the leprosy, you heard about the storm. If, you, if somehow you didn't hear about the forgiveness of sins, you heard about all those pigs being gone now. You heard something. Matthew, somebody nobody, that nobody wanted, gets called out to now be a friend of the Son of God, we know. And what they're focused on is, why is he eating with those people? How come you guys aren't fasting like we are? With everything that has gone on, this is what they're concerned with. How many times do we get caught up in the insignificant things? I don't want to answer that. God can be in our midst. He could be ministering to hearts, minds, and souls, especially in those that are desperate for him. And our response is, why do I have to clean that up? Well, they didn't ask my opinion. Why doesn't anyone say anything when their kids are misbehaving at church? <laughs> oh. How come they didn't ask someone else to help with that? Who put them in charge of that? Look at what they're wearing. What? Church. Is our defining quality, if you had to pick one, if, would it be that when God's here, we're fully focused on God? Or that we like getting caught up in the things that really don't matter right now? I don't, I don't know. It's very reminiscent of the prodigal son. And this amazing work happens, and, and this, this uh, son who has blown everything now has a new perspective, and a, a, a new eye, is humble, comes back to the father, and the brother's like, well, what about me? Church. How many times when God's moving do we think, well, what about me? Someone's in a financial uh, struggle, and something miraculous happens, well, what about my needs? Now, when this parable is talked about, it's mostly talked about with fasting. And we're going to talk about fasting. I don't think it's going to be our, it's our main point, but we're going, to, we're going to talk about it. Because it's important. That all of this, and for whatever reason, this is what they're focusing on. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It just might not be the best thing. And before we continue, there's a difference between um, fasting, uh, commanded fasting, and voluntary fasting. Now, there was really only one day of the year where fasting was commanded. I didn't know this. I thought fasting was always commanded, and then we just stopped doing it. Okay, there was one day of the year in the Mosaic Law, the Day of Atonement, that was the only time fasting was commanded. And this was nationally recognized among God's people and was appropriated for a time of remembrance, pleading to the Lord. That's commanded. Just one. That was just one day. 
for me, this blew my mind because I'm thinking they, they, were always, they always had to fast. And then there's voluntary fast. And this is the one we're actually most familiar with. Now, with a voluntary fast, uh, there's groups of people, like we see here, like the Pharisees, that, groups that instituted this themselves. It's not wrong. It's still a good thing, but there's a difference. See, the, the Pharisees fasted twice a week, and we know that um, through some other outside sources. And these voluntary fasts were often well executed voluntarily, religiously followed, but they didn't produce the authenticity that they should have. And this is what we see Jesus speaking to often when he speaks to these religious leaders. Now, the unfortunate tendency, the danger of fasting, whether commanded or voluntary, is it it can produce a showmanship, a desire for a reputation, a pride, a, a, a false humility. And as Jesus is talking to, as we'll see in a minute, that the goal and desire of this more common fasting is for praise and recognition from men rather than God. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean fasting's wrong. It just means we do it wrong more. Okay. Keep going. This is Jesus' response to them asking, why are your disciples not fasting? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So first thing to know, Jesus is not scrapping fasting. Sorry to tell you. <laughs> he's not getting rid of it. But he's, he does seem to be appropriating it. So, and this is one of the reasons we know that the, that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. The Didache, which is like a, in the most simplest terms, is a, it was a manual for the church passed down from the, from the disciples, from the apostles. Okay, in most of church history, this is regarded, it's not the canon, it's not scripture, but this is good teaching from them. We read, it says, let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the Pharisees. But do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Now, it seems like, what? 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 Okay, you just want me to switch different days. Now, the Pharisees by this time, so this was written, uh, this was compiled around 70 to 100 A.D. that time. This is still after Jesus. And what they're saying here is, along with what Jesus then talks about is, listen, you guys, the Pharisees, the ones that, that just wanted for reputation, just want to be seen, want to be seen that they're so holy because their face is so downcast because they don't need... They, do, they fast on these days. So fasting isn't wrong, but they're doing it wrong. So if you're going to do it, let's just do it on a different day. So it's, we're, there's a need for the separation that the hypocrites, the people that think they're all that, they're doing it on this day, that's fine. You know what? Okay. But you who are doing it for the right reasons, you're doing it to commune with God, you're doing it to prepare for prayer, you're doing it to plead, just do it on this day. This doesn't tell us everything. This isn't, doesn't give us all of the context, but at least we know that there was a need to separate a little bit. Epiphanius of Pavia, an Italian bishop of the 5th century, wrote this. So, remember, we have Bible, Jesus time, the Didache, the 70s, 100 AD time, 
And now all the way from that time, all the way to the 5th century, we have this bishop. And he says, Who does not know that the fast of the 4th and the 6th days of the week are observed by Christians throughout the world? I didn't know that. (laughs) So even all the way to the 5th, it was, who doesn't know that? Me neither, yeah. Those days, which we just saw in the Didache, all the way back hundreds of years before, says, no, don't fast when they fast. Fast on the fourth and the sixth day. And he's saying to the fifth, who doesn't know? This is what we do. Is that what we do? So even there, so this is a big, big drawn out way to point out Jesus is not saying don't fast. He's saying don't fast like that, but he's not don't fast. John Calvin, even later, has this to say when he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, let us say something about fasting because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it as almost superfluous. While on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily degenerates into superstition. We have that tendency. Oh, well, I better fast, otherwise, you know, I'm not going to get what I want. Or if I don't fast, oh, man, God's going to get me. It's a real easy tendency, right? Continues to say, holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends. For we practice it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from licentiousness, or as a preparation for prayer and pious meditation, or as a testimony of our humiliation in the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before him. Once again, all of this to say fasting is okay. Fasting is not only okay, it's necessary. Yep, some people abuse it, some people don't think it's a big deal, but real fasting, it's necessary. Now, these quotes that I put, I I didn't, I would like to say, I just scoured all of the books that I have to find them all, but these are very... um, common in talking about these passages, these quotes, to show the point that Je- no, if anybody walks away today saying that I said or Jesus said fasting, we don't need to do it, it's, it's meaningless, you weren't listening. Like, fasting is important, and that's a red flag for me, because I, re- I haven't regarded it that way. I'm all good if we want to take a season, like we take, take the month of on Wednesday, forget breakfast, I don't need breakfast anyway, I have coffee, yes, I can do that. But regarding it as, as a regular practice for these purposes that keep me and, and God and, and, and without other people seeing, not worrying about what other people think, but it's really that discipline and that love for what God would do through the fasting, I'm guilty. So the point is Jesus is not saying don't fast. If you get nothing else today, Jesus is not saying don't fast. So what Jesus does here is he kicks off his response to them asking about fasting with with a sense of newness. And we know this by the fact that he talked about a marriage, a wedding ceremony. Now, weddings consist of two individuals, a man and a woman coming together to be something new. Okay? He's talking about a new life that happens when a couple gets married. And this newness, this newness of life typically 
incites joy, it incites celebration, it incites uh, the joy of the fulfillment of something that has been looked forward to for so long, just like the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was now bringing. This is what he's comparing, this wedding to what Jesus is bringing. Once again, Jesus is not saying fasting is pointless, but what he is saying that in this hypothetical situation, if you're at a wedding, fasting should not be the focus of that wedding. Works should not be the focus of our faith. It should be Jesus. So imagine, imagine going to a wedding. Then you have the reception. And you and the, and the bride and the groom are super close. And you want to display how close you are at this incredibly joyful event. So you show how much you love them, how close you are by sitting in the corner, not eating, and just minding your own business. That'll show them how much you love them. That would be so awkward. That would be so inappropriate. And then you go up after them and say, hey, we had a great party. And they're wondering, what? What? That's what it would be like to fast when the joy of the Lord is consuming everything. Now Jesus says there will be a time to fast when there's a reason. Right at this time, Jesus is there. Jesus is with them. Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. It's time to party, celebrate. It's not a time to fast. Because the same people that wanted to fast, the Pharisees, the scribes, even the disciples of John, they were accustomed to this regular fasting. But they wouldn't feed the people that were actually hungry. There was a big disconnect, and Jesus was pointing that out. Now, this is to say, obedience is not dependent on religious activity and public displays of humility. And as Jesus is pointing out here, the disciples' lack of fasting at that moment did not define nor negate their obedience. That is supposed to be encouraging. Be encouraged. <laughs> That's Your stance with God is not dependent on the thing that you didn't do for him. Yay. Now, I know I do this. I'm going to assume at least one person of you does this. We're more comfortable when we have those chains on. We know how to work with those chains of guilt and shame. Because it makes sense. Well, I didn't do that, so God's mad. That makes sense. I didn't do that, and God still loves me. That doesn't make sense. Be encouraged. Jesus is telling them that he, the bridegroom, is still with them, and it's time for joy and not mourning. Just one more point, just to hammer this in. For, for, for several weeks, uh, uh, Jess and I were, were, were doing a, a plan to, to get healthy, to, to eat healthy, uh, to trim down a little bit. And uh, several weeks back, we uh, went to a conference, uh, annual network conference for the AG. It's a conference for, for pastors and ministers and missionaries, and, and, and it was awesome. It was a wonderful time of, of being encouraged uh, and worshiping together with all these pastors from our district. Um, and on the last day, they, but the last thing before you leave was a barbecue. It's like, oh, what? 
the most holy part was this barbecue. So like, okay, but we're on this plan now. So can't have any the water we can have. So, so we, we go out, and, and the line starts from inside to outside. There's this whole patio, and there's these tables. Okay, it's barbecue. What, what, what could that be? So we get there, and, and I know I'm, I'm not just keeping it mentally in there. I'm also telling Jess, I'm not going to have anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have it. I'm good. I'm actually good. I don't even feel hungry. Food disgusts me right now. I'm good. So we get to the line. Finally, we get up there. I'm like, okay, there's the normal trimmings and stuff. But then, oh, I've, so they have mountains. There's one mountain. There's another mountain and another mountain. And now there's a whole table with more mountains of this brisket. So I, I successfully got past one tray. <laughs> And then I get to the next one, like, I, like, my plate is empty. I have a napkin and a fork, and I'm good. And then I, and I've been talking, like, it's, it's a long line. I've been talking for, like, three minutes with my wife. I'm good. I'm good. The second I get to that, I'll have that. <laughs> Church, I tell you, that was not the time to fast. <laughs> and and I, I don't regret a second of it. Oh, my gosh. It's the it was the most tender. There's the fat in there, and I never eat the fat, but the fat just melt. It was a church. It was good to be a pastor that day, I'll tell you what. <laughs> it was not the time to fast. It was not the time to just walk away and ignore the joy that was sitting in that tray, I'll tell you. All right, it's enough of that. Oh, yeah, there's that. Keep going. Verse 16. No one patches an old garment in unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they, they put wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, this is a, uh, uh, a big asterisk right here. Okay. No one has the exact pinpointed interpretation of this text. Jesus didn't give it. There's some parables where right after they're like the disciples, hey, what, what was that? What was that? And he'll explain it to them. This is not, he does not do that here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna preface that to say there's there's grace needed anytime you hear someone talk about that. Some some people are very are very um, convinced of one interpretation that's great. But we don't, we don't get that. We can have really good educated guesses. We can look at the context before and after, during, and, and what it is today. But even at best, all of that study, you're st- it's still a guess. Okay? I just, I just want to put that out there. Now, that's, there's a warning there not to grab hold of an interpretation. The common understandings, their unique interpretations. And today you get mine. Okay? Okay. So, when, when we're talking about wine, I don't, I don't know, I don't know zilch about wine. You want to talk about coffee, the whole process, I got you, but it's, wine is different. This is not my work. I got this from winemakermag.com, okay? So, this is what they say. The, 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 the big process for wine, for grapes to become wine, you pick them, you do things, you put them places, is fermentation, okay? This is the definition of fermentation, 
Fermentation is a chemical reaction that takes place when yeast turns sugar into carbon dioxide and alcohol. Okay? Now, these percentages, the, a yeast cell will turn approximately 55% of sugar it eats into ethyl alcohol and the remaining 45% into carbon dioxide gas and other byproducts. When you have a fermentation process that's required to turn grapes and grape juice into wine, it has to release gas. So all that gas has to go somewhere. You put it in an airtight container, ah, everything's broken. So what they would do is, you know, we have vats and we have, you know, in the wineries that, that we do that and uh, put that in there. But what they did, uh, I'm not assuming any of this is new information. We just got to get it out of the way. That back in the day, they used animal skins. They used these skins uh, to make pouches and, and bags for a bunch of things, but they made one of them to, for wine skins to put the grape juice in there. And, and they did that because the wine skins, the skin is, is, is stretchy, so it would, it would, as the gas would go, it would stretch, and then it wouldn't break. Okay? I wonder how many like, other types of things they went through of just breaking and breaking, and then they, you know, why don't we skin an animal and try that? But that's what they did. They, they, they put them in wineskins because they would be able to stretch and take the pressure that would happen uh, in the fermentation process. Now, the thing with these skins is it only had the ability to do this once. You put the wine in the wineskin, that's it. You couldn't shrink that down, hydrate it, dehydrate, whatever, and then have it, only once. Now, once wine was poured in and it fermented, that means the same skin could not be used again. This was a common understanding at the time Jesus was talking about this. Now, with these wine skins having the ability to stretch only once, they would then become hard after that. They wouldn't stretch anymore. They wouldn't have any more give. They'd become hard. They'd become brittle. And as Jesus is talking about the wine and the wineskins. And what he's laboring in this simple... Now, I had a, I had a tough time with this because it, with, my, with my church eyes, it just seems plain and simple. You don't do that, so you don't do this. But what Jesus is saying here, which we'll get into, is that the wineskins are limited in their effectiveness. Now, we're going to break that down. I don't make assumptions of what you think that means, but these wineskins had a limit to their effectiveness. You couldn't keep using them. So he's saying you can't, you can't put new wine to the old wineskins, the old wineskins. You can't, you can't do it. There is a limit. This is a, 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 wine, a modern wineskin, by the way. I'm sure it's a lot prettier than what it would have looked like way back in the day. But keeping this in mind the effectiveness could run out in a wineskin. So the parable of the cloth of the wineskin, uh, what it's communicating, though, is that there's an existence of old wine, there's an existence of old wineskins, but Jesus is now bringing something new. Okay, you're trekking with me. I hope I'm not insulting you by saying the things that are just right there, but uh, we're just, we need to be able to stand on the same ground. He's bringing something new. He, went, he, went, he kind of did it in a very creative way to say he's bringing something new. Now, what are these new things that Jesus was bringing? Final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. New. Defeating death and conquering the grave. New. 
presence and power of his Holy Spirit within you new. The availability of those who were not considered worthy. Thank you, Jesus. New. Now, not to say that this has never been done before. It's new even though it's been done before. We look in the Old Testament, and you will find evidences of these things happening in little spurts, right? Levitical sacrifices, you know, even when the goat had, was prayed over and then carried off the sins for a year. That happened, but it wasn't once and for all. You remember uh, when Elijah uh, uh, brought back uh, the widow's son to life? That weird episode where she was upset, so he like laid on him. And, and pre- that, that happened. The son came back to life. That happened. Not, not once for all. The Holy Spirit came in and out of the tabernacle, but not once for all. Rahab, you remember Rahab with Joshua and the spies, was not of Israel. She was grafted in, and in her lineage came Jesus Christ. That happened but now we all get to be grafted in. Now the new wine of Christ, of the kingdom of heaven, was here to stay. So here's the thing, what Jesus is talking about and getting to, that the newness that he's bringing, the new thing that's going on, the new wine, it can't fit into the old wineskin. Now what we haven't done yet is pinpointed and talked about what is the new wine? What is the new wineskin? What's the old wineskin? We'll kind of try to get there. But what he's saying is that the new that he's bringing, that he is, that he has, it can't fit there. But at the same time, he's not saying get rid of that. Jesus in this parable isn't saying, why do you got a bunch of old old wineskins lying around? That's what I would think. If if you can't use it, get rid of it. Well, I I say that, but I I have things I, 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 I haven't gotten rid of yet. But... What's new can't fit in the old, but the old still has a place. He didn't disregard the old. But what he's saying, if you try to combine the new with the old, you're going to wreck them both. The old garment, if the patch is put on it, uh, it's still... The reason why you're putting a patch on it is because you know that there's still some life in those jeans. Now... I don't make my own patches, but I've done this where I bought like those iron-on ones. I haven't sewn it because who has time for that? But if you've ever put a patch on a pair, I, I, like, I like some jeans. I don't want to go through that whole process of buying new ones. But you, those ones, they still have life if there just wasn't a giant hole in the crotch. That would be, <laughs> they'd be so awesome if there wasn't a rip going all the way down the side. Like, you still want life out of them. So Jesus is not disregarding the old wineskin. But what he's saying is you can't have the new and the old. So what that tells me, as someone who's grown up in the church, that might be younger than some of my older pastor friends, is that even though you want the new and can get the new, that does not mean get rid of all of the old. Now what Jesus taught and what he brought couldn't fit into the religious checklists of practice and rituals, nor could it be confined to one group of people. Hallelujah. But there is a place for the old wineskin, for the traditional, for all of that that has stood the test of time, that has been preserved for that season. Just like we can't just get rid of hymns. 
there's still a place for the old wineskins. Okay. Now, as we're finishing up here, there's a couple causes for concern, a couple categories. Now, we're talking about wineskin. Now, I understand we haven't talked about what the new wine and old wine. I understand that. Just keep following with me. Hopefully, we'll clarify some things. I know some stuff is in the air, but just, just follow where we're going for a second. There are two categories, in my opinion, of concern. There are those that still want both. Jesus is clearly saying, in the most creative black and white picture, that you can't have the new wine in the old, you can't, you can't do it. He flowers says they'll break. You'll destroy them both. But there are still people who want both. There are still people that think they can have both. What does this look like? What is the bare minimum I can give to Jesus to upgrade myself from fan to follower? <laughs> See, after chatting with the Samaritan woman, Jesus says, you know, this woman that had multiple lovers but no husbands, uh, he goes, he tells her, sin no, mo- sin no more. Right? He says, stop. But what we say is, well, technically, it's not sex if we dot, dot, dot. Technically, it's not cheating on our taxes if we dot, dot, dot. Technically, it's not gossip if we dot, dot, dot. See, some love what Jesus teaches, but want nothing to do with the church so that they just don't go. We want to be a light. We want to be evangelistic and a beacon in our community. But we want to make sure that that person, that kid, that group doesn't get too close because they don't share the same values as we do. See, I imagine someone taking like just a couple drops of the new wine and putting it in the old wineskin to see what happens. And, oh, it's okay. Put a couple more drops in. Maybe I can fill it halfway in the old and we're okay. That's what we do. We say, how, how close can we get to the, without jumping off? We'll support a building project, but we won't tithe. Now, there was even the New Testament struggle of, of, of believers wanting to embrace the freedom that Jesus has, but you better not eat bacon. I would say, unfortunately, those people are still around. That we have people in, in, in our big seat church that still want both. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to call you out. Jesus says you can't have both. You think you look like you have both, but you don't. The wineskin's gonna break, the new wine's gonna spill all over the place. <laughs> then there's a second category for concern. There's, a, there's people that don't even want the new wine. This crowd sees Jesus and true discipleship as disruptive rather than transformational. And this crowd does still exist. Why does this crowd still exist? Because the predictability and unobtrusive nature of religion is safe. It's comfortable, and it can be done in your own strength. If you have a chart, okay, I prayed 
that time today, that time today. I helped one person. You can manage that. Well, I gave just enough that's technically 10% right down the middle. Bam. You can manage that. The King James Version is the only true Bible. (laughs) You can manage that. You can't be Christian and drink alcohol. Christians don't smoke. True worship music doesn't need the drums. We've never done it like that, so we're probably safer if we don't, you know. See, now in this one instance, though, uh, in this passage, uh, Luke goes farther than Matthew and Mark does. Do I have it here? He even goes so far and says, and no one after drinking the old wine wants the new because he says the old is better. Now, I, I think there, there might be a level of sarcasm here. But there's people that would fall into that category. Let me tell you something. (laughs) The hardest people in the church family, in the faith, the hardest people to work with, love, pray for, inspire in the church are those who desperately want nothing more than to get everything back to the way it used to be. The worship music, the, the ministry, the decor. Those people that just want that glory day. Massive thorn in a pastor's side. None of you, of course. I'm not talking talking about you guys. When you're so fond of the old wine, consumed with the nostalgia to the point of developing bitterness to the new. Here's the thing. You're in danger of being in opposition with God, not just the people around you. Now, I feel the need to be clear. We're not talking about these foundational doctrinal truths that we see in Scripture. There's no new revelation, okay? There's no new Messiah. All of that stuff is not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about, like fasting, we're talking about the, 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 the practices that hold up or confine the new one of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven. So if God is moving, if God is doing a new thing, ushering in a new season of life and ministry and joy and creativity, a new method for the church to rise up and get out of the comfort of the old wine, and you say, no, thank you, you're actually in God's way. That's not an opinion. When you say, I've done enough for God in my, in, in my years, in my age, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be part of that. Remember in Matthew 12, Jesus says, anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters. I am boldly professing to you, I believe that that can apply here. There's no neutral ground. In the, in the 70s, some say it started in the, in the 20s, uh, 1730s, 1740s, 1720s, that whole area, something really big happened. The Great Awakening. And 
This came about in the era of enlightenment and secular rationalism. It was at the height of every aspect of the culture. Okay? God was doing something. God was responding to all of that with the Great Awakening. People were getting saved. I'm, I, I, I don't... The last several years... Uh, there's a sense that God is preparing us for a revival. I have no idea. I've seen drawings. There's movies. What would it look like for, for, for someone to be preaching in the spirit of the Lord and then thousands of people falling to their face, weeping, crying out to God, repenting, uh, uh, um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, going into their neighborhoods and communities and jobs and radically saved thousands and thousands and thousands. I don't know what that would look like, but that's what was happening. One of the key people for that was Jonathan Edwards, okay? our own ambassador from Massachusetts. He, he was interviewed and asked to come speak uh, in places like Yale and Harvard about what God was doing. And I would expect something to stick out like, man, everything I touch turns to God. Like it just, God's just... R- growing everything, and everything's worshiping God. But one of the things that he was very clear about over and over again was the fact that churches and pastors continued to shut their doors to the revival that God had started. There were churches that shut their door to Jonathan Edwards. Imagine being a pastor later and thinking, I messed up. There were pastors and churches that did not want the new wine of the Great Awakening. They didn't want it. They didn't need it. They're comfortable. My version of of God and religion and Jesus, that's what works for me. That's all I need. Just this little bubble. See, here's the thing. Jesus didn't come and he didn't supercharge Judaism. He made something new. Jesus doesn't want to take what you think about him and just supercharge that. He wants to make something new. The new wine of the gospel shows the cracks in the old wineskin. It won't fit. All right, last piece. What is the old wine? I don't know. No, what is the, what, what, this, is, this is how I see this new and old wine fitting, what Jesus is talking about. And again, we know what the initial application was that Jesus, Jesus was coming with the kingdom of heaven right then and there. They're talking about fasting. He's like, why? Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. That's the big picture, the big umbrella. But I don't think it's so crazy to, to, look at our modern context and still be able to draw things from it. If you have any issues with this, please talk to me. I'm probably wrong. But this is what I think God is saying. What does old wine look like? See, we have our own traditional way of doing church, and we like that wine. Maybe God is trying to do something new. We've talked about it this year, that this is a year of change. But we've left that open-ended. 
This is the year of change carpet. No, we don't know. We can't confine what that change is. But we have a heavy sense that, yeah, we get to do some, some stuff with the building and change the outside. And our hope and our prayer is always that that's just a reflection of what God's doing on the inside. We don't want church to just be done in here. We think churches should be done with all of you everywhere. Old wine is expecting unsaved, unchurched, repentant, unrepentant people to show up on a Sunday. Hear a powerful message, submit to the Lord during an altar call. Be exclusively discipled by the pastor while you have little to no involvement in their spiritual growth and development. That's old wine. Engaging your brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday mornings alone with no desire to grow with them. It's old wine. Leaving evangelism to evangelists or hyper-spiritual people. It's old wine. Befriending Christians only or people that seem to share, value, share the same values of you as you. Old wine. Being a light to people that already have flashlights is old wine. See, Jesus earned a reputation. He was a friend of sinners. So much so that the religious hoity-toities thought he was one of them. Man, I really wanted to use that word. Hoity-toity. <laughs> that was his reputation. Is that yours? I don't know if it's mine. Separating your home life from your church life, from your hobby life, from your work life is old wine. Designating missions for a specific two-week trip in the year is old wine. Discrediting evangelism that doesn't include a full gospel presentation and a track is old wine. Staying silent or neutral on issues the Bible is clear about is old, stale, disgusting wine. Demanding change in the church without investing prayer or being part of it is old wine. I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be that guy, even though I know a lot of that is my tendency. Left unchecked and left to myself and to just interpret whatever I want, that could be me. And I think that could be you too. Now the new wine. Living like Jesus has set you free at church, at work, at home, and in traffic is new wine. Extending love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control to the person messing up your order at the fast food place. New wine. <laughs> oh. Oh. Loving the people that talk about you, didn't invite you somewhere, had a drink of alcohol, smoked a cigarette, swore that one time. Loving them anyway is new wine. 
seeing yourself as a disciple or a missionary at every staff meeting is new wine. Looking for and expecting God to use you outside of these four walls is new wine. Being friends with sinners on purpose is new wine. I'll do a quick story. Please, please, please. This is not about how awesome I am. This has nothing to do with me because I just like coffee. That was it, okay? I, when we first came to the Cape, I was working at a Starbucks uh, in, in Dedham because we were still going to school, driving back and forth. But when we were finally fully on Cape, uh, I transferred to the Starbucks here in Hyannis. And the reason why wasn't, wasn't for financial gain. It, there was, that was there, but I just, I just like working at Starbucks. So uh, we talked to the pastor, and we had a decision to make, you know, how we would divvy up my time if I was to work there. And we came to the conclusion, listen, if I don't go and work there, the only people I'm ever going to see or interact with are people in the church. All I'm ever going to do is work on my sermons for the youth, work on events, uh, talk to the pastor, have meetings, uh, see people on Sunday, all that stuff. I would never see anybody else other than who just happened to be at the beach. So we decided, okay, I'm going I'm to work at Starbucks. And the main goal was just to be around people that aren't at church. I was there for, I was there at that location for a little over a year, something like that. There was just one day. There's some great relationships, some cool things happening now because of that. But one thing in particular, I, I showed up for a shift early. And I didn't realize that I had my Bible and stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm like 45 minutes early. So I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to do my quiet time. And I've done that there just in one of the leather chairs in the back, you know, where the bathrooms are. Where no one, you know. So I was there. And I was just doing my, I was just, didn't talk to anybody. Didn't have a sign. Uh, wasn't blessing people as they walked by, nothing. I was just reading my, reading my stuff. One guy that was a regular just happened to come up to me as he was passing by. Came back. He said, are you, are you reading a Bible? It's like, yeah, yeah. Are you some type of minister? Yeah, yeah, I am. And then he just broke down saying he has no hope. He tried to do this, his family story, that. How can he have hope was his question. <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just reading my Bible. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting this. I didn't have any mind-blowing answers for him. We talked about what was in the Bible. Talked about a church. That man got saved and is still at that church today. All because God allowed me to be late for work and be in a place where I was intentionally around other people that weren't you guys. Guess what? God used that. That's new wine. It's not sitting here anxiously waiting. Oh, do we have new people? Is anyone coming? Is, is the parking Who's out there? No, it's going out there. Jesus went out there. He didn't expect them to go to the synagogue. He went to them. And then he brought it all once for all for all of us. That's the new wine. And when he comes back, I don't want him to say, these are all a bunch of old wineskins here. What is Jesus going to find? 
when he starts pouring out his new wine? Are you going to try to take a little bit of it and then put it in the old, get it in there? Well, that's not how we do church. We meet on Sunday mornings. We have to. We have to have a sound system. We have to have drums. What is he going to find when he starts pouring out the new wine? Is he going to find that we've outlived our usefulness? That we have no elasticity? That we can't handle the pressure of the new wine? That we can't take going out there and just living, thinking that someone might be thinking something bad about us? Oh, I would never bring my family there. They don't, they don't, they don't believe the same things we do. Oh, I can't go to that restaurant. They have a bar. I'm just playing. Uh, now, I'm not asking as a collective church body. Now, I'm asking as the individual, what is Jesus going to find? There's, there's a straight-up context, and I think there's also room for interpretation of what the new wine, old wineskins are. And I don't claim even a little bit to have exhausted it. Because I think that there could be a new wine in you, in your life, right now, that God's calling you to. And what is he pouring that new wine into? What are you trying to pour that new wine into? Are you ready? Are you trying to hold on to the comfortable, to the nostalgic, to the traditional Or are you going to be a nice, new, ready, flexible wineskin for his spirit? Because the text is clear, you can't be both. And no matter what you may want or not want, the new wine is coming. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your, your love, your spirit, your your grace, your patience with us. Lord, we thank you for your wisdom and it being written down long ago for us to to read and to meditate on. Lord, would we be new wineskins ready for your wine? Would we not be misinformed? Would we not be superstitious? Would we not be unwilling to do something new with you. Lord, would you open our eyes to what you are pouring out? Lord, would you give us the ability to handle the pressure that's coming as your kingdom is moving, as you have a desire for those outside of these four walls, would we have a desire for those outside of these four walls? as you use your own son and put him in the middle of a sinful, dark world, made him friends of the darkest people for your name, would you bring us to a place where we're willing to do the same? Lord, would you make all of us ready for your spirit to move outside this room? Lord, make us new wineskins. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.